Chapter One of the Exploits of Brigadier Gerard. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Philip Griffiths. The Exploits of Brigadier Gerard by Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. Chapter One How the Brigadier Came to the Castle of Gloom. You do very well, my friends, to treat me with some little reverence, for in honouring me you are honouring both France and yourselves. It is not merely an old, grey-moustached officer whom you see eating his omelette or draining his glass, but it is a fragment of history. In me you see one of the last of those wonderful men, the men who were veterans when they were yet boys, who learned to use a sword earlier than a razor, and who, during a hundred battles, had never once let the enemy see the colour of their knapsacks. For twenty years we were teaching Europe how to fight, and even when they had learned their lesson, it was only the thermometer, and never the bayonet, which could break the grand army down. Berlin, Naples, Vienna, Madrid, Lisbon, Moscow, we stabled our horses in them all. Yes, my friend, I say again that you do well to send your children to me with flowers, for these ears have heard the trumpet calls of France, and these eyes have seen her standards in lands where they may never be seen again. Even now, when I doze in my armchair, I can see those great warriors stream before me, the green-jacketed chasseurs, the giant cuirassiers, Poniatowski's lancers, the white-mantled dragoons, the nodding bearskins of the horse-grenadiers, and then there comes the thick, low rattle of the drums, and through wreaths of dust and smoke I see the line of high bonnets, the row of brown faces, the swing and toss of the long red plumes amid the sloping lines of steel. And there rides Ney with his red head, and Lefebvre with his bulldog jaw, and Lannes, with his Gascon swagger. And then, amidst the gleaming of brass and the flaunting feathers, I catch a glimpse of him, the man with the pale smile, the rounded shoulders, and the far-off eyes. There is an end of my sleep, my friends, for up I spring from my chair, with a cracked voice calling and a silly hand outstretched, so that Madame Tito has one more laugh at the old fellow who lives among the shadows. Although I was a full chief of brigade when the wars came to an end, and had every hope of soon being made a general of division, it is still rather to my earlier days that I turn when I wish to talk of the glories and the trials of a soldier's life. For you will understand that when an officer has so many men and horses under him, he has his mind full of recruits and remounts, fodder and farriers and quarters, so that even when he is not in the face of the enemy, Life is a very serious matter for him. But when he is only a lieutenant or a captain, he has nothing heavier than his epaulets upon his shoulders, so that he can clink his spurs and swing his dolman, drain his glass and kiss his girl, thinking of nothing save of enjoying a gallant's life. That is the time when he is likely to have adventures, and it is often to that time that I shall turn in the stories which I may have for you. 
So it will be tonight when I tell you of my visit to the Castle of Gloom, of the strange mission of Sub-Lieutenant Duroc, and of the horrible affair of the man who was once known as Jean Carabine, and afterwards as the Baron Straubenthal. You must know, then, that in the February of 1807, immediately after the taking of Danzig, Major Legende and I were commissioned to bring 400 remounts from Prussia into eastern Poland. The hard weather, and especially the great battle at Ilau, had killed so many of the horses that there was some danger of our beautiful 10th of Hussars becoming a battalion of light infantry. We knew, therefore, both the Major and I, that we should be very welcome at the front. We did not advance very rapidly, however, for the snow was deep, the roads detestable, and we had but twenty returning invalids to assist us. Besides, it is impossible, when you have a daily change of forage, and sometimes none at all, to move horses faster than a walk. I am aware that in the story-books the cavalry whirls past at the maddest of gallops, but for my own part, after twelve campaigns, I should be very satisfied to know that my brigade could always walk upon the march and trot in the presence of the enemy. This I say of the hussars and the chasseurs, mark you, so that it is far more the case with cuirassiers or dragoons. For myself I am fond of horses, and to have four hundred of them, of every age and shade and character, all under my own hands, was a very great pleasure to me. They were from Pomerania for the most part, though some were from Normandy and some from Alsace, and it amused us to notice that they differed in character as much as the people of those provinces. We observed also, what I have often proved since, that the nature of a horse can be told by his colour, from the coquettish light bay, full of fancies and nerves, to the hardy chestnut, and from the docile rowan to the pig-headed rusty black. All this has nothing in the world to do with my story, but how is an officer of cavalry to get on with his tale when he finds four hundred horses waiting for him at the outset? It is my habit, you see, to talk of that which interests myself, and so I hope that it may interest you. We crossed the Vistula, opposite Marienwerder, and had got as far as Riesenberg, when Major Legend came into my room in the post-house with an open paper in his hand. "'You are to leave me,' said he, with despair upon his face. It was no very great grief to me to do that, for he was, if I may say so, hardly worthy to have such a subaltern. I saluted, however, in silence. "'It is an order from General LaSalle,' he continued. "'You are to proceed to Rossell instantly, and to report yourself at the headquarters of the regiment.' No message could have pleased me better. I was already very well thought of by my superior officers. It was evident to me, therefore, that this sudden order meant that the regiment was about to see service once more, and that La Salle understood how incomplete my squadron would be without me. It is true that it came at an inconvenient moment, for the keeper of the post-house had a daughter, one of those ivory-skinned, black-haired Polish girls, with whom I had hoped to have some further talk. Still, it is not for the pawn to argue when the fingers of the player move him from the square. So down I went, saddled my big black charger, Rataplan, and set off instantly upon my lonely journey. My word, it was a treat for those poor Poles and Jews who have so little to brighten their dull lives 
to see such a picture as that before their doors. The frosty morning air made Rataplan's great black limbs and the beautiful curves of his back and sides gleam and shimmer with every gambade. As for me, the rattle of hoofs upon the road and the jingle of bridle chains, which comes with every toss of a saucy head, would even now set my blood dancing through my veins. You may think then how I carried myself in my five-and-twentieth year. I, Etienne Gerard, the picked horseman and surest blade in the ten regiments of hussars. Blue was our colour in the tenth, a sky-blue dolman and pelisse with a scarlet front, and it was said of us in the army that we could set a whole population running, the women towards us and the men away. There were bright eyes in the Riesenberg windows that morning, which seemed to beg me to tarry. But what can a soldier do, save to kiss his hand and shake his bridle as he rides upon his way? It was a bleak season to ride through the poorest and ugliest country in Europe, but there was a cloudless sky above and a bright cold sun, which shimmered on the huge snowfields. My breath reeked into the frosty air, and Rataplan sent up two feathers of steam from his nostrils, while the icicles drooped from the side-irons of his bit. I let him trot to warm his limbs, while for my own part I had too much to think of to give much heed to the cold. To the north and south stretched the great plains, mottled over with dark clumps of fir and lighter patches of larch. A few cottages peeped out here and there, but it was only three months since the Grand Army had passed that way, and you know what that meant to a country. The Poles were our friends, it was true, but out of a hundred thousand men only the guard had wagons, and the rest had to live as best they might. It did not surprise me, therefore, to see no signs of cattle and no smoke from the silent houses. A wheel had been left across the country where the great host had passed, and it was said that even the rats were starved wherever the emperor had led his men. By midday I had got as far as the village of Salfeld, but as I was on the direct road to Osterode, where the emperor was wintering, and also for the main camp of the seven divisions of infantry, the highway was choked with carriages and carts. What with artillery cassons and wagons and couriers, and the ever-thickening stream of recruits and stragglers, it seemed to me that it would be a very long time before I should join my comrades. The plains, however, were five feet deep in snow, so there was nothing for it but to plod upon our way. It was with joy, therefore, that I found a second road which branched away from the other, trending through a fir-wood towards the north. There was a small auberge at the crossroads, and a patrol of the third hussars of Conflans, the very regiment of which I was afterwards colonel, were mounting their horses at the door. On the steps stood their officer, a slight, pale young man, who looked more like a young priest from a seminary than a leader of the devil-may-care rascals before him. "'Good day, sir,' said he, seeing that I pulled up my horse. "'Good day,' I answered. "'I am Lieutenant Etienne Gerard of the Tenth. I could see by his face that he had heard of me. Everybody had heard of me since my duel with the six fencing-masters. My manner, however, served to put him at his ease with me. "'I am Sub-Lieutenant Duroc of the Third, said he. "'Newly joined?' I asked. "'Last week.' I had thought of much, from his white face and from the way in which he let his men lounge upon their horses. 
It was not so long, however, since I had learned myself what it was like when a schoolboy has to give orders to veteran troopers. It made me blush, I remember, to shout abrupt commands to men who had seen more battles than I had years, and it would have come more natural for me to say, with your permission we shall now wheel into line, or, if you think it best we shall trot. I did not think the less of the lad, therefore, when I observed that his men were somewhat out of hand, but I gave them a glance which stiffened them in their saddles. "'May I ask, monsieur, whether you are going by this northern road?' I asked. "'My orders are to patrol it as far as Arensdorf,' said he. "'Then I will, with your permission, ride so far with you,' said I. "'It is very clear that the longer way will be the faster.' So it proved, for this road led away from the army into a country which was given over to Cossacks and marauders, and it was as bare as the other was crowded. Jurok and I rode in front, with our six troopers clattering in the rear. He was a good boy, this Jurok, with his head full of the nonsense that they teach at Saint-Cyr, knowing more about Alexander and Pompey than how to mix a horse's fodder or care for a horse's feet. Still, he was, as I have said, a good boy, unspoiled as yet by the camp. It pleased me to hear him prattle away about his sister Marie and about his mother in Amiens. Presently we found ourselves at the village of Haino. Duroc rode up to the post-house and asked to see the master. "'Can you tell me,' said he, "'whether the man who calls himself the Baron Straubenthal lives in these parts?' The postmaster shook his head, and we rode upon our way. I took no notice of this, but when at the next village my comrade repeated the same question, with the same result, I could not help asking him who this Baron Straubenthal might be. "'He is a man,' said Duroc, with a sudden flush upon his boyish face, "'to whom I have a very important message to convey.' Well, this was not satisfactory, but there was something in my companion's manner which told me that any further questioning would be distasteful to him. I said nothing more, therefore, but Duroc would still ask every peasant whom we met whether he could give him any news of the Baron Straubenthal. For my own part, I was endeavouring, as an officer of light cavalry should, to form an idea of the lay of the country, to note the course of the streams, and to mark the places where there should be fords. Every step was taking us farther from the camp round the flanks of which we were travelling. Far to the south a few plumes of grey smoke in the frosty air marked the position of some of our outposts. To the north, however, there was nothing between ourselves and the Russian winter quarters. Twice, on the extreme horizon, I caught a glimpse of the glitter of steel and pointed it out to my companion. It was too distant for us to tell whence it came, but we had little doubt it was from the lance-heads of marauding Cossacks. The sun was just setting when we rode over a low hill and saw a small village upon our right, and on our left a high black castle which jutted out from amongst the pine-woods. A farmer with his cart was approaching us, a matted-haired, downcast fellow in a sheepskin jacket. "'What village is this?' asked Duroc. "'It is Arensdorf,' he answered in his barbarous German dialect. "'Then here I am to stay the night,' said my young companion. Then, turning to the farmer, he asked his eternal question, "'Can you tell me where the Baron Straubenthal lives?' "'Why, it is he who owns the Castle of Gloom,' said the farmer, 
pointing to the dark turrets over the distant fir forest. End of part one of chapter one.